I'm kind of thinking, yes, you got so, yeah. I tried to increase the volume of my prayer as I went, but I think they may have heard that and increased their volume. No. Um, all right, well, as we continue on today in our study of church history, kind of a survey, we're, we're skimming the surface. We're certainly not going deep in a lot of areas in a lot of ways. Occasionally, we'll dive in a little bit deeper than we might at other times, but but um, certainly, there's just so much material and so much information that um, that we could just sort of spend a lot of time on. Not not so much that it would necessarily be helpful to everyone. I know that uh, sometimes this subject matter can get a little bit um, heavy or academic in nature, and so I really want uh, to try to continue to move through this study in a way that is edifying and that um, pushes us toward Christ, that helps us to um, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's really the goal. It's not for us to just be puffed up through knowledge, but to really uh, develop a more faithful walk with Christ. And so I hope that we can accomplish that a little bit today. We talked last week, we kind of introduced last week this sort of this next period. And I don't, I don't necessarily want to overstate that, that this next period is called the period of the apologists. But what you do see happening after the early church fathers, these disciples of the original apostles and some of their writings begin to emerge, you do see emerging on the heels of that uh, a, a greater volume of writing that's characterized by apologetics or defending the faith. And we started talking about that last week. This is really getting us into um, the second and on even into the third century um, after that, that early church period uh, from about AD 30 through around AD 90 to AD 100. And of course, the death of uh, the Apostle John uh, in about AD 100 or so. Um, you have the early church fathers that sort of come after that, that we've kind of walked through and given some examples of some of their writings and some of the doctrine that was emerging and, and sort of solidifying the church and their understanding of the gospel and salvation by faith alone and Christ alone and those kinds of things. Uh, we moved now, uh, starting last week, into this, um, this period of time where apologetic writing begins to emerge. And we sort of cited a few of the key names that you might have heard of uh, if you've had any study or exposure to church history. Uh, Justin, or also known as Justin Martyr, uh, sort of a big name from this time period, has written quite a bit uh, from about 100 to 165 is when he was alive. You had Tatian from about uh, 120 to 180 AD. You had Clement of Alexandria from about 150 to 215 AD. You had Tertullian from 155 to 225 A.D., and you had Origen from 184 to 253 A.D. These are approximate uh, date ranges. So these are just some of the names that you have quite a bit of writing that emerges during this period, and it, and it certainly is distinguished from some of the writing that you saw in the time of the early church fathers, the disciples of the, the first apostles, um, the, the, the original apostles and founders of the New Testament church, um, it's distinguished in that the, the early church fathers, their writings were primarily centered on, on clarification of doctrine, on encouraging the saints, on um, really uh, writing about hope in the midst of persecution, um, faithfulness. There's several writings that, that describe various faithful men's uh, uh, journey toward martyrdom and how they conducted themselves and things that they stated before the, uh, the rulers as they were being executed for the faith. Those kinds of things were sort of the subject matter of writing, whereas in this period it's much about defending the Christian faith. It's much about writing a defense against opponents of Christianity. And you had as probably, I guess, the primary opponent, um, the looming opponent in this period of time, the Roman Empire, if you just want to create the big umbrella of opposition to Christianity. And you had these, these several different aspects of, of attack or assault against the Christian faith that emerged. One of the things we talked about last time is, is as we reference some of these writers, um, we have to be very careful that we don't um, overstate uh, what their contribution has been to, um, to the faith and to church history. We need to be careful to, to note, we did last time, that many in the writing in this time period began to drift toward allegorical interpretation of Scripture. So if you find yourself getting curious and, and beginning to say, I'm going to do a Google search of Origen, or uh, Clement of Alexandria, for example, 
um, and you start reading some of their writings, you're going to see some of their biblical interpretation drift into a more allegorical approach to biblical interpretation. So let me give you a little more specifics about that. I mentioned it last week. But for example, Clement of Alexandria, a great apologist and had and contributed some really helpful uh, writings, he essentially sort of formalized um, this, this, this type or this form of the system of interpretation. Then he actually endorsed and articulated that Scripture could be interpreted with up to five different meanings. And he broke that down this way. There would be a historical understanding of Scripture, which would be more of a literal, on the face of it, what is it saying kind of understanding. There would be a doctrinal understanding, which would be centered around what we're supposed to understand and believe about the faith and about God and about uh, doctrinal matters. There's a prophetic understanding. So what does this have to do with prophecy, with future things, with end times, with consummation of the age, those kinds of things. There's a philosophical understanding. And then there's a mystical understanding, a spiritual understanding, something that's totally not on the face of it, something that you would have to find in the passage below the surface. So you can just probably surmise by the way I'm describing this, that this could lead to all manner of error, potentially. Um, all manner of, of interpreting Scripture or espousing Scripture to mean a certain thing that's just really not there. It's really flowing out of the heart and mind of man, for better or for worse, wherever that might lead someone. And so that was a, a really um, strong development during this period of time. Origen, who was a student of Clement of Alexandria, who also contributed greatly during this period in terms of apologetics, um, he, he took this a bit further, and he, um, he actually believed that, that the simple people, okay, the simple, the less educated, uh, the less erudite, the less sophisticated intellectually, they should be edified by the letter itself which would be the obvious, most straightforward meaning, or equating it to Alexander's idea, the, the historical meaning of Scripture. He would, he would also argue that people at a higher level, get where this, going, this is going, right? People at a higher level should find edification or encouragement for their souls through the moral meaning of the lessons of the text. But the perfect... The really elite should be edified by the mystical or spiritual sense in relation to Christ or the spiritual law as it contains the shadow of the blessings to come. Now you can start to see the seeds there of developing a hierarchy in the New Testament church, right? You have, in other words, if there is a certain way to understand Scripture, that is only accessible by a certain elite group, you can see how that could quickly emerge into a hierarchical understanding of church governance, of who has the right to expound upon the scriptures, and everybody else should just be the recipients of that and follow suit, right? You can see how that could start to happen. Well, this allegorical method of interpretation was sort of um, creating very, very um, fruitful field for that kind of development. Did I don't know if I would necessarily say that. I mean, I think it's, it, it contributes to it. Um, I mean, I think denom denominations emerge for a whole range of different reasons. A lot of times they would emerge over just differences in, in how to understand uh, church practice from Scripture. Um, sometimes it would emerge out of deep uh, doctrinal disputes. Um, so it definitely contributed to that too. You, and usually denominational, you know, de denominations would start under leadership of a few who said, this is how you should really understand this. So yeah, I probably in some way contributed to it. I think more, I think probably more prolifically it contributed to the development of the the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church as these sort of imperial type, you know, churches with, with a very, very, um, almost like a, a governing 
um, rulership type of structure uh, in terms of their understanding of, of the church. Um, <clears throat> and this, this was a dominant way that, that, that Scripture was interpreted, interpreted, like for a thousand years. I mean, it was, it was pervasive and significant. Nonetheless, these, these uh, writers, Clement, for example, of Alexandria and Origen and others, um, definitely, as I said, contributed as well to a defense of the faith. It wasn't a situation where um, they were completely off the rails. It, just, it was just a developing reality of how they began to understand and interpret Scripture. And, and that sort of took root um, uh, under their tutelage. Now, we talked a little bit last week about how um, so, several of their writings uh, center on a defense against what I just called baseless rumors that the, the Roman Empire, many in the Roman Empire or in sort of pagan culture, would, would talk about or, or sort of um, lay sort of slanderous accusations against Christians for their practices that were just pretty absurd in nature. And we talked about some of those uh, last week, um, but the apologists were seeking to sort of dispel some of these, these rumors that were just completely erroneous about who Christians were and what they did and what their practices were. For example, we talked last week about uh, the love feasts, which was an actual thing, an actual um, identifiable, termed gathering of believers during this time period. Um, In fact, uh, one writer describes a love feast or an agape feast as a fellowship meal eaten by Christians in the early church. There were communal meals, everybody sharing food together. It was like the original potluck. I mean, it's what it was. People gathered together. I mean, you know, I'm being a little bit, uh, you know, current in my terminology, but that's what it was. It was a communal meal. Everybody comes together and they share food and, and they share fellowship. It had certainly a, a spiritual intent and purpose, and it was oftentimes not just associated with the gathering for fellowship and for food, but also the sharing of the Eucharist, the communion meal um, in remembrance of the Lord's death. And, and they also referred to each other, as we said last week, as brother and sister, and even spouses referred to one another this way. And so as we read from, um, from uh, Justo Gonzalez's book, um, the, the unbelievers, the pagans, because this was sort of they met together and it was, you know, had like a secret society kind of idea to it, and they, had the, you know, they heard these second and third hand rumors of, brother and sister, and they called them love feasts, and so their, you know, their minds go to this, this sort of sensual kind of place, and they began to uh, be accused of, of having these orgiastic celebrations that were filled with all kinds of sensuality and drunkenness and excess, and, and even incestuous uh, behavior. That was kind of the, the way that they were slandered. Um, they were also accused of being, we talked about last week briefly about being atheists, because they would not sacrifice and worship all the pantheon of pagan gods, and so they were, they were actually accused of being atheists. And their god that they worshipped couldn't even, wasn't even represented by any kind of idol or temple or anything like that. Um, it was this, this apparently resurrected mystical you know, god that was a man one time kind of thing, but he's no longer present. Uh, but primarily because they wouldn't, they wouldn't sacrifice to the, to the pagan idols. They were considered godless or atheistic. And they were also even accused of being cannibals. Um, there was rumors that they would take infant children off the streets who had been abandoned. This is the ir- irony of ironies. The Roman pagan people had a tendency to abandon children that they didn't want and leave them. And the Christians would come along and take them in to care for them. But they were also accused of taking them in so that they could actually eat them. So this kind of sort of absurd slander became the impetus for mounting a defense. And, and sort of the nature of some of their writings really began with, for example, Justin's um, apology where he wrote to the emperor. He just basically said, can you just start by looking at the actual evidence? Can we, can we just get away from slander and just look at what's actually happening? And he writes, uh, as we talked about last time, he writes in, this, in his uh, apology, his first apology, uh, a very detailed description of what a day in the life of a Sunday service of worship amongst New Testament believers looked like. And of course, it would be much like what we do. I mean, it, he talks about gathering together in the same place, 
um, um, looking at the apostles' writings and the prophets, reading them, having someone expound on them, uh, singing prayers. I mean, just typical stuff, right? So he basically gave us two things. One is he demonstrated how um, approaching um, rumor is best dispelled by a clear and simple presentation of factual evidence. He also demonstrated to us and gave us a window into what New Testament early Christian worship would look like and give us some kind of you know, identification with what was going on during that time period. But what we talked about last week and what I want to just kind of reiterate is that the nature of that kind of apologetic, that kind of defense of the faith, points directly to the civil, godly, righteous, good conduct of Christian people in the community as the fundamental apologetic, as the fundamental defense against the attack. And we talked about this last week as we looked at 1 Peter, but I want to I sort of highlight this from a different angle to, to make the point once again that this compelling and urgent need for the church to maintain its purity, th- this is a, cru- a crucial aspect to having credible apologetics be possible. It's crucial. And evidence for that you can find directly around this particular issue, even from Scripture. You have, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul rebukes the Corinthians for what? Abusing the Lord's table and the love feast gathering. What was going on is they were having these love feasts, these these agape feasts where they were coming together for a communal meal and to also take formal communion, the Lord's Supper, together. And there were excesses. There was division. There was drunkenness. And rather than, and, and there, was this, there was this focus on sort of drunken self-centeredness rather than sober self-examination. They were getting drunk and they were eating their food and they weren't sharing with anybody. And there was divisions. Rather than there being a sense of reverence and awe, a sense of gratitude, a sense of self-reflection, that's where he talks about, you know, examine yourselves. Don't take this meal in an unworthy manner, he tells them. So in the very context of this this normal Christian gathering, he is rebuking the the Corinthians for participating in this gathering in a way that's unworthy, that's that's ungodly, that's that's self-centered. And there's a world that's watching during this time. And so this idea of slandering Christians in a sweeping kind of way, these kinds of acts gave fodder to that kind of accusation. You can go on and you can look in Jude, which focuses on false teachers and deceivers finding their way into the midst of believers in the church. And Jude says this in verses 3 and 4 and 12. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, defend the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. The very thing that the Christians were being accused of and what they were doing in their gatherings. Sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Down in verse 12, These are hidden reefs in your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. So the caution here from Jude to the believers is, listen, you've got people that are sort of slipping into your midst and you're unaware of them and you're unnoticed. He refers to them in a number of different metaphors, but in this particular case where he actually references love feast as hidden reefs, meaning that they could be the source of shipwrecking your faith, right? If you don't see the reef and you're sailing on the ocean and you crash into a reef, what happens other than shipwreck, right? So they're hidden reefs. They could be the source of shipwrecking the faith because they're focused on sensuality and ultimately denying our master and Lord. In other words, they're false believers, they're false teachers, and they're with you and they're among you. So when you think about both our individual purity and faithfulness in sanctification and putting on and putting off and seeking to be 
constant repenters, constantly devoted to the unity of the faith and the bond of peace, constantly being vigilant in maintaining purity in the church and dealing with persistent sin. This is not just something that we're called to do as a matter of course for the church. This is about providing credible ground for the defense of the very gospel that we claim. It's so crucial. And we have these examples from Scripture that give us indication that, listen, the kinds of things that the world will try to draw out and then accuse us of to invalidate our faith and our belief and our practice, they will pick things that they can actually see and twist and make an argument from that could actually be happening in some form or fashion. It's, it's, it's happened before, and it'll happen again. This is really nothing new. Following uh, Solomon's um, axiomatic statement, there's nothing new under the sun, you can come to modern day, and you can take someone like Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, a writer and journalist, but a very prolific, extremely convincing to many and articulate um, atheist and debater against Christianity. And he would say something like this in his book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. The Bible may indeed, but the Bible may indeed does contain a warrant for trafficking in humans, for ethnic cleansing, for slavery, for bride price, and for indiscriminate massacre. But we are not bound by any of it because it was put together by crude, uncultured human mammals. So here's a man who is taking something that he is perceiving is the way you should understand something from Scripture, and he's twisting it to formulate an argument to attack those who would believe in Scripture. The same can be true for what non-Christians would do if they see unbelievers conducting themselves in a way that is dishonorable to the Lord and to His church. They will seize upon it, and they will use it against the church and the advancement of the gospel happens all the time. So this, this compelling reason for purity in the church is directly tied to a platform for faithful apologetics in defense of the faith. It's not just, us, it's not just about us making sure that we're just doing the right things all the time. It's much more significant and profound than that. You have Richard Dawkins um, saying this, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, uh, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Yeah, that's a mouthful, isn't it? That's from his book, The God Delusion. So this is, just, this is just what you can expect the unbelieving world to do to try to undermine the Christian faith. It's not just going to come from a place of some intellectual superiority. We know how to think about things much more cogently and much more eruditely than you do. That, that your religion is crude and unsophisticated and you just don't know anything. It's going to come at the place of core, fundamental, day-to-day practice. Are you faithful to what you say you're to be faithful to? Are you, are you faithful or are you compromised? They'll use it against us. So we must maintain purity in the church for that reason, but a host of others that are subject of another, another time. So <clears throat> that was sort of, the, 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 uh, sort of a revised summary of this defense against sort of these absurd criticisms, these these, uh, these rumors, these unfounded, baseless rumors. But there's another category that I just sort of alluded to, and it's, it's the defense that you see them writing about, a defense against sort of lofty criticism. This is where you get into sort of the intellectual, philosophic, philosophical types of argumentation against the Christian faith and the argumentation back in defense of the Christian faith. One is based upon the clear representation of facts, in the hopes that there's not believers or professing believers who are engaged in corrupt practices that make that evidence that you're presenting less credible. 
There's nothing more you can do to eradicate baseless, senseless rumors other than try to bring truth and clear fact to bear. Then you get into the more sophisticated argumentation, these lofty kinds of criticisms. Uh, Justo Gonzalez says this about the, this, this, this type of criticism. He says, it's much more difficult to refute, or much more difficult to refute was the criticism of a number of cultured pagans who had taken the trouble to learn about Christianity. So these are, these are not baseless rumors. These are from people who actually tried to understand and study the writings and listen to the people that were professing uh, faith in Christ and that kind of thing. They had taken the trouble to learn about Christianity and claimed that it was intellectually wanting. You ever heard anybody say that in our day and time, right? It was intellectually wanting. Although it attacked Christianity on numerous levels, this criticism boiled down to one main point. Christians were an ignorant lot whose doctrines, although preached under a cloak of wisdom, were foolish and even self-contradictory. So this is a whole other sort of genre of attack or assault against the Christian faith. Nothing new under the sun. Same stuff's going on today. You had one writer, Celsus, He wrote on the true doctrine, a discourse against the Christians in 178 A.D. writes this long treatise that's really an assault against Christianity. And this was basically his primary angle against Christianity. It was one from an intellectual standpoint, and it was basically an attack against the sub-intellectual adherence to Christianity. He said this, First, however, I must deal with the matter of Jesus, the so-called Savior, who not long ago taught new doctrines and was thought to be a son of God. This Savior, I shall attempt to show, deceived many and caused them to accept a form of belief harmful to the well-being of mankind. Taking its root in the lower classes, the religion continues to spread among the vulgar. Nay, one can even say it spreads because of its vulgarity and the illiteracy of its its adherents. And while there are few moderate, reasonable, and intelligent people who interpret its beliefs allegorically, yet it thrives in its purer form among the ignorant. Now think about that attack. Here you have someone who is even tapping into this allegorical method of interpretation and saying at least that's a little bit more sophisticated in nature. So now you have this intersection in this whole realm of defending the faith, of the intoxicating and enticing appeal for Christians to want to be accepted and embraced by the intellectual elite. Very dangerous for believers to desire that and to crave that. It will only and always lead to compromising the veracity, the truthfulness, the clarity, the perspicuity of Scripture. It will, it will result in compromise. That's what it will result in. But he even, he even taps into that, giving some tip of the hat to those that at least they're you know, doing something a little more sophisticated in their interpretation and presentation of the claims of Christ and the truths of Scripture. He said, yet it thrives in its pure form among the ignorant. So here's his argument. Christianity is for knot-headed yahoos that don't know anything. That's just to kind of put it in, you know, sort of current, current vernacular. Yes, you got it? <laughs> Are you finally with me after all this time? So that's, that's the nature of his argument there. Now, Origen, he wrote an entire multi-volume treatise called Contra Celsum, against Celsus. So, I mean, that's called direct titling, right? If you want to know what this book's about, Read the title. Uh, This came along in about 248 A.D. And here's one of the things that he said, kind of in response to this whole argument that Christianity is unintellectual and it it is only attracting primarily vulgar, unintelligent people. Okay, And I think that this is a really compelling way to to sort of argue against it or really just sort of state reality. from a, from a sound perspective. So Origen says this, Truly, it is no evil to have been educated, for education is the way to virtue. So he's just saying, that we, Christians, I'm a Christian, and there's nothing wrong with education. In fact, Origen was 
sort of a, a philosopher before he was a Christian, and he actually probably did some merging of philosophical thought in ways that could be confusing um, and maybe even a little bit co-opting of clarity in terms of um, uh, communicating the truth. However, um, he's basically making his opening statement by saying it, that there's, there's no evil to, be, had to, to have been educated, for education is the way to virtue. He goes on, We acknowledge that we do desire to instruct all men in the word of God so as to give to young men the exhortations which are appropriate to them and to show to slaves how they, may, how they may recover freedom of thought and be ennobled by the word. And those amongst us who are ambassadors of Christianity sufficiently declare that they are debtors to Greeks and barbarians, to wise men and fools, or, and that as far as possible, they may lay aside their ignorance. Not to participation in mysteries and to a fellowship in wisdom hidden in a mystery, which God ordained before the world to the glory of the saints, do we invite the wicked man and the thief and the housebreaker and the poisoner and the committer of sacrilege and the plunderer of the dead and all those other whom Celsus may enumerate in his exaggerating style. But such as these we invite to be healed, for there are in the divinity of the word helps toward the cure of those who are sick. He basically just says, yes, the church, the gospel is for all. Low class, upper class. It's actually intended for those who are slaves, who are criminals, who are sinners. Because it brings the cure. It delivers them from the bondage of slavery, is his point. So he just basically takes that and agrees with it and then flips it and says, this is what this is about. It's a pretty, pretty sound way to defend the faith and make an argument in this regard. Now, I want to make a point of clarification here before we move forward. It is important as we think about this, just not just specifically from the standpoint of a historical view of some apologetic writing, but from the standpoint of thinking about defending the faith in general. It is very critically important, and we'll see this in just a minute, that we have a distinguishing um, thought in our mind about this between evangelism and apologetics. They're not discrete, separate, never-to-be-commingled kinds of camps or practices or endeavors for the believer. They're certainly, they weave in and out, back and forth, altogether. But what we can't allow ourselves to do is to begin to think that evangelism is, or excuse me, that apologetics is the way we do evangelism. And I'll explain that in just a minute. What you see happening here, and what I'm referring to here, is actually defending the faith against slanderous, absurd notions of what it means to be a Christian, and attacks against the intellectual soundness or against sort of class-based attacks of the adherents of Christianity. It's a defense. So the writing is not necessarily oriented toward gospel presentation, for the sake of evangelism and compelling someone to consider Christ for salvation. Though it could have elements of that. It's important to make that distinction. Again, heading, nothing new under the sun. So again, this intellectual attack against Christianity. Well, let's fast forward to modern day. You've got another one of these new atheists, one of these well-known and beloved amongst the atheistic community, Sam Harris. In his book, Letter to a Christian Nation, he said this, while believing strongly without evidence is considered a mark of madness or stupidity in any other area of our lives, faith in God still holds immense prestige in our society. Religion is one area of our discourse where it is considered noble to pretend to be certain about things no human being could possibly be certain about. It is telling that this aura of nobility extends only to those faiths that still have many subscribers. Anyone caught worshiping Poseidon even at sea, will be thought insane. So here's uh, Sam Harris just basically saying, this, is, this whole Christian belief, it's, it's standing up because you have so many adherents, but if you just step back outside of it for a minute and you recognize that, the, that this is a whole system that is being perpetrated with no evidence whatsoever, it's equating it to 
something as silly as being at sea and believing in Poseidon. It's, it's intellectually absurd. There's no evidence for it. This reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We alluded to this, maybe even read some of it last week. But the Apostle Paul captures this perfectly. This, this tension that we are talking about here with this intellectual assault against the Christian faith. There is, in fact, a truth, and this is where you get into the idea of evangelism versus apologetics. There is a reality in which the Christian faith will seem absurd to the unbelieving mind and heart. There's no way around that. And this is where I I think the temptation or the lure for believers, we can get sucked into wanting some type of acceptance by intellectuals of our arguments. And we fail to realize that what the Apostle Paul describes is always going to be true. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I love how he says that. It is not just a great idea. Big difference. The word of the cross is not just a coherent intellectual philosophical system that I can adopt. He says the word of the cross, for those who are being saved, it is actually the power of God. And you, you can test this. Anyone who has lived a period of time and a period of their lives as uh, avid unbelievers, even atheists, even, even vitriolic, argumentative atheists, and somehow how in their journey, by the grace of God, they come to faith in Christ, in every case, I can assure you, what they encountered was not all of a sudden, finally after this, all this time, some really more sound and more coherent argument than I've ever heard before that finally convinced me intellectually that this is a good idea. What happens time and time again, even with people who are radically converted to faith in Christ from a position of avid and strident atheism, is that they literally encounter the power of God and they're completely broken before Him. And all of their intellectual towers that they built up, they just immediately come crumbling down around them. That's the testimony of people who come to faith in Christ. It's not that they come to faith in Christ because someone finally came along and weaved together a really clever argument for its veracity. That's not how it happens. So the Apostle Paul, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is nailing it. No surprise, right? It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, he, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What we preach is foolishness to the perishing. Always has been, always will be. He goes on, Consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you are wise according to worldly standards, but some are. Not many were powerful, some are. Not many of noble birth, but some are. I think it's important that we highlight this, especially for where I'm going to go next. To recognize in this passage of Scripture, because so many, so many of us, and I say us emphatically, so many of us, me included, are, we, we identify more with the common side of this argument than sort of the noble intellectual side of this, that not many wise, hands goes, that's me. Not many noble, that's me. We're all, that's, that's good. And we find a sense of solidarity in this kind of passage, don't we? we? We find a sense of, thank the Lord. Thank the Lord I didn't have to be super, super smart to be a Christian because I never would have gotten there. Or thank the Lord I didn't have to be born into a certain family with a certain lineage to have a relationship with God because I never would have qualified. And so most people who are Christians identify with the not many wise, not many uh, wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. And he goes on, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And we find a sense of affirmation and and gratitude and thankfulness and solidarity in this passage. But I think it's also important to note that he says not many. Because God does redeem 
wealthy people, brilliant intellectuals, people of noble birth, noble bloodlines. He does redeem them too. And so we have to be careful that we don't equate Christianity over against some secular idea of nobility or intellectualism or something like that. What oftentimes can happen, the reason why I point this out, it leads to what you see in these early apologists and what you see today is this tension between faith and reason that really shouldn't exist. But it gets, it gets majored upon. Today, it's more of a, of a dichotomy between faith and science, right? Faith and evidence. Those are the terms that you'll, you'll hear more of today. Because of all of our advancements in science, for example, it's basically eliminated the need for religious faith and religious practice. That's kind of the the fundamental argument of the new atheists. It's no longer an argument of, well, we just have different worldviews. It's now an argument that says, for the rational person, knowing what we know today, understanding the discoveries that have been made in the areas of science and astronomy, astrophysics, uh, um, mechanical, um, what is it, Um, quantum physics, all these different areas, cosmology, all these different areas of discovery, right? All these things we now know. It's no longer just a different worldview to adopt belief in a sovereign creator God, much less a savior in Christ. It's now irrational. How could you possibly, in the face of all this hard science, this inarguable, indisputable scientific evidence, how could you possibly hold on to this faith in the supernatural? You're, you're now absurd. And in fact, you holding to this makes you a, a danger and a threat to society because all you're after now is the control of people. You want to control their moral life. You want to have control, for example, over... The, the womb of women would be the political argument against abortion, right, from a religious standpoint. That's, that, it's, that, that's where it goes. You're ignoring science. So, so this idea of tension between faith and reason it was something that has always been there. It was even there during some of the writing of these early apologists. You have this tension. For example, Justin Martyr and Clement of Alexandria and Origen, these three, as just examples or a sampling, they would represent... Um, those who would be more favorable to integrating Christian apologetics with Greek philosophy, for example, to, to sort, sort of intelli- uh, the, the modern-day, current-in-their-time intelligentsia and their arguments for reason for existence, why we're here, morality, these sort of these transcendent uh, philosophical positions. So they would be kind of okay with adopting some of that in their argumentation. Henry Sheldon, one historian, said it this way, Writers of this class conceived that the divine word, the universal reason, which appears full-orbed in the Christian revelation, has shed some rays of light into the souls of all men. They took pleasure in pointing out the instances in which philosophy appeared to coincide with Christianity. So that's one camp. Kind of on the other side of this, you had Tatian and you had Tertullian. Tertullian, probably the most prolific in his writings. They would be less favorable. They would have a less favorable view of pagan philosophy and its place in the defense of Christianity. Henry Sheldon writes of this group, and he writes of Tertullian in particular. He says, he too honored the reason in man, but his confidence was more in the unsophisticated reason than in the logic of the philosophers. The so-called philosophers were, in his view, rather patriarchs of heresy and falsehood than of truth. So, in other words, Tertullian would say, I'm not even going to adopt anything that they have to say, and I'm going to stay far, far away from them because they're heretical. They're the fathers, they're the patriarchs of heresy and falsehood. An example, Tertullian wrote in his, his work, Prescription Against Heretics, he said this, These are the doctrines of men and of demons produced for itching ears of the spirit of this world's wisdom. For philosophy it is, which is the material of the world's wisdom, the rash interpreter of the nature and the dispensation of God, the elimination of God, the removal of God. He also wrote in his Apologia, 
nor need we wonder in the speculations of the philosophers. No, excuse me, nor need we wonder if the speculations of the philosophers have perverted the older scriptures. Some of their brood, with their opinions, have even adulterated our new given Christian revelation and corrupted it into a system of philosophic doctrines. So there is, there is a, a real danger in trying to syncretize secular thinking with revealed truth. Secular thinking that's flowing out of an unregenerate heart and mind and trying to sort of synchronize it with biblical truth as a method, as an intentional method for formulating a stronger argument that appeals to someone who would be an adopter of that secular way of thinking. There is a real danger in watering down the power of the truth of the gospel and the truth and power of scripture. A real danger. Now, oftentimes what happens, though, is you have people just swing to one camp or another without any thought of of how these two things kind of go together, where they ultimately do merge. And they don't merge in some system, some, some you know, clear point one, point two, point three system of philosophy for how to understand the universe. They merge in the fact that we are all created in God's image. We are all created by God and for God. Some vessels of wrath, meant for destruction, and some vessels for more noble use, right? So everybody is a creature of God created in his image. And everybody has been given a capacity to reason and to think beyond themselves. Everybody has. We also just have to recognize that we're fallen in our sin nature. And so in our appeal to to reach out to people, and, and try to present compelling arguments for the, the veracity, the truthfulness of the Christian faith, we have to make sure that we don't believe that somehow the formulation of our argumentation is what's going to be the, the, the magic linchpin that's going to bring them over. It never will. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to run away from certain kinds of argumentation. I would take you to Acts chapter 17 and the Apostle Paul at Mars Hill. And what he did was, he said, I see that you're very religious people, for I notice that you have an altar to an unknown God. And later on in that argument, he says, he quotes from their own poets, in him we live and move and have our being, as your own poets have said. But what you also see, flooding that whole zone, is clear presentation of Old Testament truth and New Testament gospel. God the creator of all things. He basically owns all of you. He is not made by men. He doesn't dwell in temples made by men. In him we live and move and have our being. He is beyond and above all things. He's appointed a day where everyone will be judged. And it depends upon this one man, Christ, as to how you will be judged. I mean, he presents this gospel message. He doesn't, you know, say, it says in you know, Genesis this. He doesn't quote references to Scripture, but it's clearly presentation of, of biblical truth. So the Apostle Paul, I think, is, is a great example, obviously, of, of communicating in a way that doesn't run away from trying to identify points of, of contact with people but also doesn't compromise on the presentation of the gospel. Recognizing, as he said in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. Not my clever arguments. Not my knowledge of secular Greek poetry. None of that is the power of God unto salvation. Well, I've mentioned John Lennox before. I like the way John Lennox sort of captures this. this he, he, deals, he deals extensively with this tension, this uh, you know, apparent um, conflict between faith and science. That's really his domain. He's a, he's a brilliant mathematician from Oxford and uh, philosophy of science. He's just a brilliant guy. But he, he says this, God is not an alternative to science as an explanation. He is not to be understood merely as a God of the gaps. 
He is the ground of all explanation. It is his existence which gives rise to the very possibility of explanation, scientific or otherwise. It is important to stress this because influential authors, such as Richard Dawkins, will insist on conceiving of God as an explanatory alternative to science, an idea that is nowhere to be found in theological reflection of any depth. Dawkins is therefore tilting at a windmill, dismissing a concept of God that no serious thinker believes in anyway. Such activity is not necessarily to be regarded as a mark of intellectual sophistication. He goes on to say, Indeed, faith is a response to evidence, not a rejoicing in the absence of evidence. So I I kind of wrap up with just bringing us back to modern day, recognizing that the argumentation that takes place between the unbeliever and the believer is nothing new. It all bears the marks that it has always borne. The same things that we need to be cautioned of today are the same things that they needed to be cautioned of back when, in the early time of these apologists. Faithfulness to the scripture, faithfulness to the gospel, a clear recognition of what is the power of God unto salvation, and a clear, humble understanding that the gospel to those who are perishing is and always will be foolishness and folly. No matter how persuasive, how clever, how studied our arguments might be. And our tendency is often towards either pride. I mean, how good does it feel for someone to go, I never thought of that. That's a great argument. Yeah, it kind of was, wasn't it? That feels good. Or for people to say, wow, this guy's really smart. I mean, I don't agree with him on everything, but he's really smart. Or for us to want to have some kind of audience with people that are known to be really, really, really intelligent and to be a part of that club, to not be hated and scorned by men. I'm I'm just reiterating the fact that we need to be ready to give a defense with gentleness and respect, but we need to also realize that it's the gospel that saves and it's the gospel that infuriates. Yes. Yes, I would. That's, you could do a whole talk on that, a few talks on that. Yeah, a lot of the pragmatic compromise that we have in the church today, it stems from, uh, to me, a, a misappropriation of, of what it means to evangelize and defend the faith and do church. Yeah, it's, 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 it's an appeal to man's cleverness as the winning ticket. Any final thoughts or comments before we close? It's 10.16. I've kept you a long time. All right, let's pray.